Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. Today, I'm joined by Mark Weber of the Institute for Historical Review. Mr. Weber, thank you so much for taking the time today. You're welcome. It's always a pleasure being on with you. Thank you, Keith. Where is the best place uh, to find your collection of research and news articles? On our website. And thank you for mentioning it. It's uh, IHR.org. Uh, very easy to get to. Uh, it's a tremendous resource, really. There's a great amount of material on there, and the uh, uh, search engine can find things, uh, almost any topic you care to have an interest in, you'll find a great deal on there. Uh, there on the uh, left-hand column of the homepage are lots of sort of current articles and things that are relevant to things happening now, and on the right-hand side are some highlighted articles that I think are of particular importance for one reason or another, but uh, in the body of the uh, website are tremendous, uh, tremendous library, tremendous archives of material that I think is really relevant. And because it's about history, it never really goes out of uh, style. That's a good thing about studying history uh, because it's all history after it takes place, I guess. What is it that people need to know about the current situation in Ukraine that the media is not telling them? <laughs> when I was very young, <clears throat> I learned that uh, propaganda and distortion of reality does not take place because people are lying. It takes place because of how news is slanted. It takes place as much in what is not said as in what is said. And uh, the current coverage of it, first of all, I want to emphasize, I have a great deal of sympathy for Ukrainians and for Russians, both, both peoples. Uh, what's happening is terrible. Uh, I, I, I mean, above all, this war, this destruction, this suffering, this death is a terrible thing, above all for the Ukrainians. And uh, that's, I, I'm very much unhappy about what's happening, but I also try to look at this from a point of view that is both historical and I think more uh, objective. But uh, the main thing to is not to be highly influenced, especially about what the United States should do in this conflict by the fact that in this war, as in all wars, there are refugees, women and mothers who've lost their sons and husbands, uh, buildings that have been destroyed, uh, terrible consequences of bombing. That's true of every war. And war itself is a terrible thing. No matter even who wins, it's still bad. It's still bad even if the so-called winners win. <clears throat> uh, and one thing I want to strongly emphasize is how there's a tendency in America to talk about war in a much more uh, unserious and light-handed way compared to people in other countries. I learned this when I was very young. I was 18 years old and I was living in Europe. And I was very struck by how everyone in Europe is much more opposed to war than Americans. Americans, even when I was a boy, would talk, well, if Russia causes trouble, we'll just bomb Moscow. Or if Iraq's a problem, we'll turn their country into a parking lot. You hear this kind of thing all the time from Americans. And that's because wars do not affect us in the way they affect other people. Our wars are far away. And there's a tendency in America to look at conflicts as a kind of football game or a boxing match. One side should win. 
uh, our side, quote unquote, should win. But after, even if we lose, life goes on. We come home, everything goes on. And Americans don't understand the consequences because World War II or the Vietnam War or the Iraq War were horrible experience, were horrible for those, for those countries, uh, for, the, for Europe and for Asia, for the Japanese, the Chinese, the Poles, Germans, French, all those countries. These were terrible, but not for America. During the war, except for the poor guys who were being shot on the front lines, it was a time of prosperity in America. Jobs were plentiful. The actual pro living standards went up in America during that time. But during the Vietnam War, which caused, they say, a million deaths, a million deaths. More bombs were dropped in the Vietnam War than were dropped by all the countries in the Second World War, with huge, with huge loss of life for many people. But Americans were almost oblivious of the war until large numbers of American bodies began coming home. Then Americans got really, before that, well, we just got to win. We just got to win. And that's a problem now with this Ukraine war. There's a big tendency in the American media and by politicians to look at this as a boxing match, as a football game. And our side, that is the Ukrainians, should win and they're going to uh, beat the Russians or they should beat the Russians. There's a lot of talk in the American media uh, talking about, oh, we brought these sanctions against Russia and those sanctions are really hurting. Yeah, they hurt, I suppose. Yeah, they're meant to hurt. But the really people that are suffering are the Ukrainians. I, I wish people were more uh, mindful of the terrible consequences of this war for the very people that we supposedly sympathize with than with the Russians. Yeah, sanctions, but sanctions will end and life will go on. And in this conflict, it's very important to realize several things. First of all, no Russian leader was going to take any position really other than that that Putin has taken. They're not going to allow hostile military bases and missiles on their borders or as they would see it in their country. Remember, Ukraine for centuries was part of Russia. When the czars were, in, uh, were ruling in Russia before the Bolsheviks, the title of the czar was czar or emperor of all the Russias, all the Russias. Now, what does that mean? That meant Great Russia, Big Russia, which we call Russia, White Russia, which is Belarus, that's what it means, is White Russia, and Little Russia, which is what they called Ukraine. There wasn't really a sense about Ukraine, really. Ukrainian nationalism was a very dubious thing, also in uh, Belarus, a Belarus uh, kind of consciousness. But that's, that's, that, that happens in history. But the point is, for Russians, Ukraine is not some faraway country. It's very much part. And they are, America pledged at the end of the Cold War, when the Berlin Wall came down and Gorbachev came to power, and the Soviet forces withdrew from East Germany, from Hungary, from uh, Bulgaria, and so forth, and uh, those countries stopped being communist, the Americans gave pledges, verbal pledges to the Russians that NATO would not be expanded. And Russia has been very disappointed that instead of following or living up to those pledges, the United States began expanding uh, NATO against Russia. That's obviously, although the United States officially says, oh, NATO is just a defensive alliance. It's not directed against anybody. 
Well, that's really silly. Everybody knows, really, that the only real entity of it is, is Russia. But, but really, NATO itself, and again, I've been astonished at how many people seem to be very ignorant about what NATO is. It's a military alliance. It was set up to oppose the Soviet Union, to be a force of threat, if ne of threat and, if necessary, actual war against the Soviet Union. Now, the Soviet Union is gone. And it would have been, I think, fitting to abolish NATO after the end of the Cold War. But okay, it didn't. I mean, the, NATO goes on. Now, there's a lot of problems with NATO. NATO, in the, because it's controlled by the United States, the uh, uh, Germans and the British even sent their troops as NATO troops to Afghanistan. Now, nobody in Britain or Germany wants any of their troops in Afghanistan. Nobody can even conceive of any reasonable good reason why German and British troops should be in Afghanistan. They're only there because the Americans wanted them there. Now, this is a big thing. Anyway, the big point is to stand back and see this thing in a larger context. And I'm especially angry. And this is the point I think above all that should be emphasized. This war would not have taken place, this destruction, this misery, this death, if American diplomacy and statecraft had been more sober, more long, uh, far-sighted, and more uh, realistic back in the 1990s and up until the present. All along, this war could have been avoided by taking into account the not unreasonable demands of Russia. No, and those demands, and that's how I think ultimately this war will end. This war will not end, as Americans like to think, with regime change in Russia, with uh, the crushing of the Russians. Americans like their wars to end like it did with the Japanese or the Germans in World War II. That's not how most wars end, or even American wars. That's not how Vietnam ended. It's not how Afghanistan or Iraq ended. And no Russian is going to permit anything other than something like what Putin is doing. Anyway, though, there's three points that Putin insists upon and every Russian will insist on. First, uh, there must be strong pledges by Ukraine, backed by the United States, that Ukraine will be militarily neutral. Now, that's not a bad thing. Finland is militarily neutral. Austria is militarily neutral. There's no reason why a country that's militarily neutral, like Finland and Austria and Switzerland, can't be prosperous and uh, uh, do well and so forth. And Putin is not asking that Ukraine disappear. He's asking, first of all, there be no military alliance of Ukraine with U.S. forces and foreign uh, military in their borders. Second, uh, Russia wants a recognition of Crimea will stay with Russia. It was never really part of, of Ukraine anyway. It was given as a so-called gift in the 1950s by Khrushchev when the Soviet Union existed. And it didn't matter very much because it's all the Soviet Union. But it's ethnically not Ukrainian. It's uh, the Soviet, uh, the uh, Russian Black, Flea, uh, uh, Black Sea Fleet is in Sevastopol. It, it really should be part of Russia. And again, uh, it was in 2014 or 15 that Russian troops took Crimea, but America didn't act with the same uh, fervor that it's acting now, perhaps because Americans more or less accepted that Ukraine 
uh, shouldn't be part of Ukraine, uh, that uh, Crimea uh, should be part of Russia and not part of Ukraine. The third is there has to be some special status or different status for the Donbass region. The area is Russian speaking. It's uh, perhaps it means there'll be some uh, diminution of Ukraine's territory. But Ukraine will still exist as a state, and it can be a prosperous state. Maybe a way to deal with it is a, um, a, a, um, an agreement that there's a plebiscite in Donbass under international supervision. That might be a way to do it. I don't know. But none of this is worth a war. That's the big point. None of these points, whether Donbass stays in or out of Ukraine or Crimea, or whether uh, Ukraine is uh, militarily neutral, is None of those reasons are uh, worth fighting this terrible war over or uh, letting it continue. Anyway, th that's the main point I would emphasize. So many uh, important points there. I want to uh, just address the concept that NATO and America are not trying to vilify Russia. This is totally uh, th this is totally false. What we can see if we look at the 2016 campaign, we had Hillary Clinton on the debate stage, saying that Russia has interfered with our election and 17 intelligence agencies have verified this interference. But one year later, the New York Times reported a White House memo. This is in the correction section, June 29th, 2017. A White House memo on Monday about President Trump's deflections and denials about Russia referred incorrectly to the source of an intelligence assessment that said Russia orchestrated hacking attacks during last year's presidential election. The assessment was made by four intelligence agencies, the DNI, the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA. The assessment was not approved by all 17 organizations in the intelligence community. So it was only approved by the people with the worst track record in the country. Then they ran Russiagate again in 2020. The feds say, according to CNN, Russia and Iran have interfered with the presidential election that was on October 1st, 2020. Politico, Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former intelligence officials say. More than 50 former intelligence officials signed a letter casting doubt on the providence of a New York Post story on the former vice president's son. The point being, they have accused Russia of more or less waging war on America if you violate a country's government, uh, the, the independence of a government, whether it's, you know, Germany going into Belgium or, you know, even uh, Otto von Bismarck trying to put a prince in Spain. Well, then the French took that as uh, as an aggressive action. So they're saying that more or less Putin is sort of controlling the American government. So it's not something far away. It's a threat to us. So they vilify him for four years. Then they surround the country. Uh, with a NATO alliance, yeah, uh, we kind of see that the next step would be regime change in Russia. That's not too far off, considering the U.S. brags about regime change, both Democrats and Republicans, in Libya with Gaddafi, in Syria with Assad, which they explicitly wanted, not to mention uh, an attempted regime change against the Taliban, Saddam in Iraq, and according to General Wesley Clark, they wanted uh, seven countries in five years. Uh, no. To uh, have uh, to face regime change, well, and so, regime change yeah. in Ukraine and in Ukraine. Oh, in March of 2014. Yeah, that's of even more, yeah. more relevant. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, uh, 
it's not nice when countries interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, but it's pretty astonishing and even chutzpah, you could say, for the United States to be uh, complaining because Russia supposedly, oh, look, a lot of this is because the Democrats didn't want to believe uh, that Trump could possibly become president without some foreign uh, involvement. Look, and, and this so-called involvement, it's, it's all kind of silly. It doesn't really affect, I think, very much about the um, outcome of these elections. It's more amazing that Trump was elected considering how the American media was so hostile to him just across the board. But that's neither here nor there. That's another matter. Or how uh, Facebook and Twitter uh, change their algorithms. Anyway, all that is a, is, is, a, is a thing for another time. But you were bringing it up in the context of NATO. And I was a little surprised because you didn't relate it really to NATO exactly. But the point is about NATO. You know, there's a U.S. military base in Poland. And for years, when the United States has asked, why is that military base in Poland? Who's it, who's it defending against? The United States officially would say it's, defend, it's there because of a threat from Iran. Well, of course, nobody believes it. It's crazy. But that's the kind of and how, how in God's name does anybody think that the so-called North Atlantic Treaty Organization has some uh, important role in Afghanistan? It absolutely doesn't. The, 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 the uh, proof that NATO is essentially an American uh, tool is the fact that when the United States decided, when B Biden decided finally to leave uh, Afghanistan, well, the British and the uh, German troops left too. Well, of course they did, because the decision is entirely dependent on what the United States was doing. It's not some, NATO didn't make some independent decision. Well, I guess we better send troops to Afghanistan. This is in, uh, um, quite consistent with what the United States does over and over. And it will try to have face-saving measures to get countries like Georgia or whatever to send troops to this place or that place, some token amount to try to give some impression that this is a so-called coalition of the willing in whatever war the United States is involved in. But th this is, goes to a really more uh, uh, serious point about American foreign policy. And this is a point I've made about the Biden administration and about especially, uh, you might say, ideologically driven Democrats like Biden. They believe that the United States is the great champion of liberal democracy in the world, that it's, it's, it's the American mission to bring what they call American democracy or American style democracy everywhere in the world sometimes on a more overt way, sometimes in a slow way. But they believe the entire world should politically, uh, um, politically and uh, in state uh, organization be similar to the United States and culturally. Well, this is astonishing arrogance and not only arrogance and unrealistic, but completely out of keeping with the foreign policy, as you well know, as most, I think, viewers know, that America had for most of its history. That is, we don't try to be the policemen of the world. We don't try to lecture everybody about their form of government. And most of the world is pretty sick of the United States um, lecturing countries around the world about how they ought to uh, deal with women or gay people or whatever. I mean, even if it's right or wrong, 
the arrogance of it is that always the United States says the way the rest of the world should be is the way the United States is now. Not the way it was 20 years ago, not the way it will be 20 years from now, but the way it is now. It never is, well, how about if it's okay if we have the way the United States was in 1900 when women didn't vote? Oh, no, you can't do that. It's all based on the here and now. It's like a, a child who thinks that whatever opinion he holds now is the right one, even if there's a record of this person changing his view about all these things. But this is very, very uh, typical of modern day America, which forgets that the United States didn't give a darn about uh, Ukraine for until uh, what uh, recent years anyway. And Putin has made the point over and over. He would like relations with the United States to be similar to what they were during World War II. Now, that's a big, that, that raises questions about America's role in the war. But he remembers when the United States and the Soviet Union were allies in World War II. And during that conflict, no American would think of bringing up what the people in Ukraine wanted or didn't want. Nobody in America cared, really, even about uh, the countries that were being taken over by the Soviet Union as their armies uh, went westward in 1944 and 45. And <clears throat> Putin has made, and in fact, Russian law even uh, puts into uh, law, they want history to be looked at in the way, uh, Second World War to be looked at from the point of view of the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Well, the International Tribunal at Nuremberg viewed that Russia was guilty of nothing wrong. They did everything right. And the Nuremberg Tribunal took the view that uh, whatever the Americans, the British, the French, or the Russians did is not even up for discussion. Not even up for discussion. That's what Putin would like. Now, of course, that's not only unfair, unjust, and historically ridiculous, but if Putin's view is right and America's present-day position is, uh, is, is uh, wrong, then our whole view of the Second World War needs to be reevaluated, and even the Nuremberg trials, because the Nuremberg trials were entirely one-sided. Um, but anyway, that's another th matter. And Putin is trying to say over and over, we're against fascism. Now, what do they mean by that? You know, they say that... Um, uh, People may disagree about who the good guys are in politics, but everybody agrees the bad guy is Hitler. If he's like Hitler, he's bad. It was already in 2016 that Hillary Clinton said that Putin is like Hitler. Well, in the American context, that is so emotional, that is so emotive, that the implication is whoever is like Hitler ought to be killed right away. We shouldn't even hesitate. Don't even, don't even... Don't even <laughs> sit back for a moment because if he's if he or she, I guess, is like Hitler, well, there's only one answer, death. That's the only answer that's going to be acceptable. But of course, everybody now uses these kinds of comparisons and they're highly emotional and uh, very, very destructive to any kind of uh, reasoned and objective or reality-based uh, statecraft. Yeah, one of the points that Arthur Ponsonby would uh, make in his book, uh, published in 1928, do you remember the name of that book about uh, the First World War? Um, uh, um, I, I, uh, I shouldn't have mentioned it if I can't even yeah, remember. No, I, uh, um, uh, 
Yeah, we even published an edition of it. <laughs> Gosh, uh, 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 okay. It, it's about propaganda in the First World War. Uh, falsehood in wartime, it's called. Falsehood in falsehood wartime, wartime, thank you. Yeah. How, yeah. how did I remember the year but not the title? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And you remember so, the author, too. That's good. Yeah. But so, yeah, um, yeah, he was a member of parliament. He was a leading, uh, important person. But he was very concerned about war. And he kept on saying, what, what was it worth? Well, after all, after all was finished, what was it really worth the death and destruction, and uh, the, uh, that the war brought? And he would say no. But anyway, his the book is a very thin volume, but it's a very good volume, pointing out how uh, the public was buffaloed, as we say, was was very very highly driven by these emotional propaganda, and we're seeing that right now in Ukraine. That was a point I made earlier. The, every major news network has their own correspondence now in Ukraine, and they do interviews with women and children and refugees. This is very emotional, of course, and everybody naturally has a lot of sympathy. But we never got during the Vietnam War any stories from North Vietnam about the effects of bombing or the effects of American military action in uh, the people who were the victims of those actions. And we never got that in Iraq. When America uh, invaded Iraq in 2003, there was only one single Western correspondent in the American media in Baghdad. That was uh, Peter, um, um, was from CNN. He was a British, Australian. Peter Arnett? Peter Arnett, right. And he was only uh, a person there. He wasn't on the street interviewing people saying, well, your house is gone. Uh, how do you feel about that? And, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and, uh, you know, your son's dead and, and, and with a lot of emotion. There was only Peter Arnett was the only correspondent because the American media and with the, co uh, uh, of course, the American government with the connivance and support of the American media made very sure that the American public didn't see the impact of these wars a war of choice, by the way, by the United States, a war based on lies. But much of the reason I think that the Ukraine war has such unanimity from the American media and from American politicians is because we can feel we're the good guys in a conflict that's much more that's that's not as dubious as Iraq or Afghanistan or Vietnam. Uh, I think it also matters that they're people, they're white people. So people are much more sympathetic and much more able to relate to that than they are to people in Asia or in the Middle East. That's another factor. Now, I understand that, but that should not be the criteria for U.S. foreign policy. America's action shouldn't be based on uh, how sympathetic uh, this nation or that nation might be. And you're very familiar, of course, every, many people are familiar with the famous quote by John Quincy Adams, who said, America wishes well of all nations, but it doesn't go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. And right now, America's on a tear about trying to destroy Russia and Putin's Russia. It's very, very high. And it's, 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 it's not going to happen. There's not going to be a regime change in Russia. I've seen this over and over. I remember I was doing interviews for some Middle East television back when Obama was president and demanding, insisting that Bashar al-Assad had to leave the presidential palace in Damascus. 
And I said even then, I said long after uh, Barack Obama is out of the White House, Bashar al-Assad will still be in the presidential palace in Damascus. And indeed he is. But Americans have very short memories. They don't really care, really, if American actions are, America is guilty of the very things that we get very indignant about when other countries do them. If we interfere in foreign, country, foreign elections, if we invade other countries, if we violate international agreements, or if our, our media even lies to us. You know, even in Britain, it's a, a healthy thing that most British hold uh, Tony Blair in contempt for his involvement in getting Britain to go along with the United States in the Iraq invasion of 2003. He's held in contempt. And he should be because he went along and he was lying. His own uh, um, uh, attorney general or whatever, uh, high ranking people told him, look, you're just trying to make the case uh, fit the evidence. You're not making the evidence. You're, you're, you're not you're making. I mean, you've already decided what you're going to do. You just want to find evidence to try to justify a policy. You're already deciding on it because you're going with the United States. He was warned about this, and the world knows this. But in America, nobody held a Colin Powell or George uh, Bush to the same standard, uh, the same standards of indignation, the same way of uh, same uh, attitude of contempt with which Tony Blair is held in Britain. There is a article that you can find in USA Today that was summarized on Mises.org. Ukraine's regime is now kidnapping fathers for military service. USA Today reports the Ukraine State Border Guard Service has announced that men ages 18 to 60 are prohibited from leaving the country. According to reports, in particular, it is forbidden for men aged 18 to 60 Ukraine citizens to leave the borders of Ukraine. A statement from the service said, according to CNN, this regulation will mean in effect for the period of the legal regime of martial law. We ask the citizens to take this information into consideration. So I know that CNN and USA Today are uh, always enemies of the people. However, that came out a while ago. I haven't seen a retraction. They have every incentive to defend Ukraine as the great uh, land of freedom that's being invaded by the great fascists. So I believe that that is an accurate story. They also link to uh, videos in the description. Right. The reason I brought up Ponsonby is because it's not enough. The, the reason there's so much evil deception in wartime is because as much as I could get people to chant at a baseball game, F Joe Biden, or people can put the stickers on gas stations blaming Biden for high gas prices, they might really dislike the government. But to get people to take up arms and risk their life and get their limbs blown off to get shot at, you have to get so much indignation in them. So what right. you end up doing is totally fabricating the reality of the situation. Assad, right. bad guy. But those gas attacks were totally fake. It was using the idea of a dictator using gas to sort of uh, align him with Hitler in the minds of people. Um, so that's why those stories were so heavily capitalized on. But right. that's why there's so much falsehood in wartime. They have to raise the stakes so you will correspondingly raise the amount of risk you're willing to take. Um, any thoughts on that yeah. or military? No, that's a, that's a, that's a very good, that's a very I, good point. 
I, I, I mean, just just one final thing. If the whole thing is we can't have Russia control uh, Ukraine because they would restrict their freedoms, being conscripted has to be one of the worst forms of forced labor that anyone can ever face. I spoke with uh, one of my uncles uh, who was in the Second World War. I think he was almost 100 years old when we had this conversation. He was telling me about a Japanese uh, pilot that he killed, and he was so close to him that he was able to see that this Japanese guy was terrified. He goes, look, he goes, you know, Keith, I was drafted. This guy, I'm sure, was drafted by the emperor. I killed this guy, and he could have had a family, and he starts crying. This guy's 100. After all the propaganda, the human beings are still saying, you know, gosh, I really feel for those other people. So that's why it's so important to see through this propaganda. It causes so much harm so unnecessarily. Right. So if you're so worried about being uh, your freedoms being restricted – the Ukrainian regime's doing it in the worst way possible. Thank you for letting me go on that. Rant. Well, Keith, that's I, I wanted to address that. Uh, you probably, maybe you are not aware of it, but the Zelensky government has also abolished all opposition parties in the country. It has also uh, taken state control of all of the media. So uh, uh, dissident voices are just not permitted on the in the Ukraine media now about the war. I mean, those are pretty pretty draconian measures. If, uh, uh, but all countries, to a greater or lesser degree, tend to do that in wartime. Again, that's a particularly sad aspect of the of the entire conflict. Yeah, yeah. He suspend all the political parties. I mean, this is essentially a, a dictatorship. Now, it's probably very popular right now. Uh, the population seems to be rallying around Zelensky. But being popular isn't the only measure of whether a country is free in that sense. I mean, uh, uh, Germans uh, supported Hitler uh, right, right to the end, basically. And uh, they called up uh, all men between the ages of 16 and 40 in the final, uh, ages, uh, final months of the war. I mean, that's what countries do. The Confederacy did that uh, American Civil War. That's what countries do. But my point is, is these are all aspects of a war, and this is a terrible thing. I mean, I'm not trying to say good guys, bad guys, Zelensky's a bad guy, Russia's good guy, or vice versa. There, they, most of life is different levels of good and bad in everyone, in every country. That's mostly what the case is. There are very few people like Mr. Burns in uh, The Simpsons who rub their hands with glee when they bring uh, pain and suffering to other people. Most people are not like that. But my point really is, is, is a big one. Now, I want to go back to a very important point you made about uh, uh, the role of emotion and propaganda in war. This is especially true in war. And the reason for that is the average American has uh, opinions based on his experience about taxes, about schools, because he's either been to schools or his children at schools, about traffic laws, about drug laws, about uh, COVID or masks. Everybody has an opinion about that based on some sort of experience. But Americans, just like people in most countries, most of the world, they don't have any personal way of relating to what we should do in Afghanistan or Iraq or Ukraine, for that matter. Uh, these are far, far away. Uh, you know, they say that... Um, War is uh, the way that Americans learn geography. 
And over the last two months now, millions of Americans are familiar with Lviv or Kiev, as they call it now, the capital of Ukraine, in a way that just a, a year ago, very few Americans would have even uh, known what Lviv or Lvov is or some of these other places, or Donbass. Now you hear about Donbass. My point is, in foreign policy, Americans have to rely only on the media. They don't, they don't have any personal experience to relate to. And so how foreign policy and war is presented is going to be far more dependent on the media. And that's why a media that is as irresponsible or as biased as the American media can be and has been uh, on numerous occasions is very, very dangerous. I recommend very highly, and I have over the years, all of the writings of George Kennan. He was an American historian and diplomat. Now, really a great man. And I, on our website is a study guide, a listing of recommended books. And there are several books by George Kennan that I recommend. But he writes about this as well, about how in foreign affairs especially, the only way to get Americans jumped up and excited about a war is by feeding them lots of one-sided propaganda. Otherwise, they're not going to care because war is going to mean sacrifice. Their sons might go away and die or their husbands or bad things are going to happen. Taxes will go up. Something will happen. But so the only way to get Americans or any people really excited about the prospect of war is by giving them lots of propaganda. And it's especially ridiculous in the case of the United States because we don't have any existential enemies. We don't have any enemies that can really threaten the United States. If Ukraine is part of Russia or it's independent, isn't gonna matter much really to America. It was part of Russia for centuries and now it's not, okay. But life will go on in America more or less, whether it's uh, part of Russia or not part of Russia. The same thing is uh, all these other things, whether Vietnam, is independent or is an American uh, satrapy or puppet state, it's not going to matter really in the long run. A thing that life will go on. And uh, the same thing is true of the Middle East. America has these huge um, emotional uh, uh, interest in the Middle East. And really, whether uh, Saudi Arabia or Israel or these countries have this regime or that regime isn't going to really matter very much to Americans because we've got two big friends the Atlantic and Pacific Ocean that keep wars far away from our borders. And we have all of the resources basically that we need right here in this country to have a good life. And so these wars around the world uh, are especially ridiculous. And that's why I get back again, I'm more worried about Biden and people like him, Hillary Clinton or uh, Madeleine Albright who just recently died who seem to think that we're on a big mission to make over the world like the United States. Now, this is especially absurd because the United States is less and less a model, even for Americans here in our own country. Nobody around the world says, oh, I want our cities to look like Chicago or Detroit or Los Angeles. Nobody around the world says, boy, if we could have a political system like America so that we could get a Biden or a Trump as president, Almost no, nobody in the world thinks that. They think the American political system, the American economic system, the American social system is, all, is very defective. There's big problems. And I wish 
the leaders who are willing to get so emotional about Ukraine would uh, turn some of that uh, concern to problems that we have right here in our country. Excellent points. So uh, for those who are a little unfamiliar, uh, George Kennan is the father of what's known as the containment policy. He wrote an article titled Sources of Soviet Conduct. He wrote this anonymously in the Council on Foreign Relations Foreign Affairs publication. And this more or less was the ideological justification behind the interventions in Korea, in Vietnam, in Grenada, in, uh, I believe, Nicaragua, Angola, uh, Afghanistan in the 1980s. So this is someone who uh, is held in very high esteem. Here's what George Kennan said in 1997 to the New York Times. Expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. Are you amazed that people in high places even knew that this uh, could happen, and it still did, and they still kept expanding NATO? No, I'm not, because... Just the last few years have shown that in the American media and in our politics, we continue to give a forum and a voice to people who have been so spectacularly wrong in the past. Yeah. And they're still treated as uh, examples of insight and uh, wisdom about foreign policy today. The same people who were so wrong about Iraq and that disastrous war are still held up as, well, we have to pay attention to these wise voices. Some of these people seem to, there's no war they don't want. There's no war that isn't good. This is crazy. But no, so I'm not surprised. And I emphasize George Kennan because he was a very wise person. But I will say this, it's not quite true what you said. He wrote a policy about containment, but he was absolutely against the Vietnam War. He felt the Vietnam War was a big mistake. He believed that containment was especially uh, pertinent in Europe, not in the third world. But more than that, <clears throat> he wrote this famous long letter when he was at the US Embassy in Moscow. And this was in 1946 or 47. And Stalin made a speech, had made a speech in which he said, well, World War II takes took place because capitalists fight each other and capitalist states are like that. And this caused enormous confusion in America because Americans like to believe, like Franklin Roosevelt and even Harry Truman, that the Soviet Union is a great partner for, world, for a new world order that we're, going to, we're building. Amer uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the American media were pro-Soviet during the war. I know it's hard to believe, but that was the, that was the reality. And uh, when Stalin made this speech, it seemed to say, in effect, that we, we, we Russians or we uh, Soviets, we don't really trust America either. And in, at the State Department, they were all confused. They didn't, well, how is that possible? I thought we were friends. Well, Stalin is smarter than that. He's not a fool. Uh, foreign policy isn't based on who we like or who are who 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 who's able to tell jokes at 
or how we look into people's eyes and see their soul, as we hear American politicians say. Stalin had very definite ideas about the place of the Soviet Union in the world and about Soviet interests, and he didn't deviate from that. And he got a tremendous advantage from his alliance with the United States in the Second World War. But Americans like to think, well, if he's on our side, he's a good guy. Well, no, Stalin isn't a good guy. He's a bad guy or more a bad guy than a good guy, I guess. But the point is that after that, after that speech, the State Department wrote back and said, well, can you explain, Mr. Kennan, what's, what this means? And so Kennan decided to write this very lengthy piece going back into Soviet policy over the decades, what motivates them, how they see the world, and what the United States policy should be given this reality. Not to be either overly alarmed or overly sanguine and optimistic about the Soviet Union. It should be based on reality. And George Kennan is, you might say, a, a leading voice in what's called the realist school of foreign policy. That's represented now by, especially in recent weeks, by John Mersheimer at the University of Chicago. His video that he did several years ago outlining the dangers of expanding NATO and what Russia was likely to do and how Russia is angry at what's going on has gotten now, I think, two million views because it was so prophetic. But our leaders don't care about Mersheimer. He was prophetic, but the people who were wrong about Iraq, they're still voices we do listen to. That's how crazy it is. But anyway... John Mersheimer, uh, Stephen Walt, uh, Doug Bandow is, is very good on these issues. Um, I mean, as far as realistic foreign policy, almost all the libertarians are very good. Pat Buchanan is, is good on these issues because they try to see the world as it is. And foreign policy should be based on the reality of how the world is, not on illusory, uh, delusional ideas about how the world ought to be. And this is especially difficult to sustain in a country that increasingly has these problems internally, as many public opinion polls show. Americans are not happy about the direction our country is going in. So you'd think the attention should be based on that. But I'm afraid that many Americans really like to feel that America proves it's a good country when it's fighting bad guys. It's a little bit what I call the Superman uh, I, I, idea of America. Well, how does Superman prove he's a good guy? Only when he's fighting bad guys. Otherwise, he's Clark Kent. Otherwise, he's nobody. Uh, but when he's fighting bad guys, that's when he's great. And Captain America, Spider-Man, all these comic book characters. And Americans have, a, have been trained or educated or cajoled into seeing world affairs in this kind of way as a battle between good guys and bad guys. And of course, America is always a good guy. But this is not only childish, foolish, but arrogant too. And that's my bigger uh, complaint, my bigger uh, point about what this Ukraine war means, because it's part of a parcel of looking at foreign policy in a very unrealistic way. So my uh, my point about uh, containment was simply that it was the ideological justification. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so, okay, so can, can we well, he, uh, he, uh, he, agree that it was 
Well, the, that's that's not that's not untrue. It's just that he kept on saying, "Look, I didn't mean by containment some of the things that are now done in the name of containment." That's the, my only point. Is got that, it. Is that George Kennan was uh, uh, consistently very very realistic. He was a man. I mean, George Kennan was a remarkable man. He was at the U.S. Embassy in Berlin in 1939, 1941, 40. He was in Moscow in uh, the Cold War period. He was stationed for years. He uh, was fluent in both German and Russian. He had a really understanding of the world. His great uncle had written, a, uh, his uncle had written a big book about Russian policy even before he was born, I think, or when he was very young. Anyway, George Kennan was a person of just rare, uh, knowledge and erudition and was and and his words had proven as prophetic as they are because he has a realistic view about how the world works including the soviet union yeah russia's going to be different it's going to do things china's going to do things different india's going to do things different than the united states they're different cultures they're different societies they're not inferior to the united states they're different and the united states has to deal with the world that's how the world is and the idea that George Bush and Barack Obama and um, Bill, Joe Biden have, that the whole world should be some uh, patterned after the United States is not only delusional, it's dangerous. And the now, fortunately, Biden has made clear, we hope, that the United States isn't going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine, although we're doing everything just short of actual going to war. But... When, when he rat, ratchets up the emotional uh, rhetoric the way he has, calling uh, Biden a criminal, a butcher, a war criminal, a genocide, all these kind of things, it's very difficult to restrain the dogs of war when they've been uh, uh, encouraged as much as they have to go after the rabbits, you might say. There was a document published uh, or written by then Ambassador William J. Burns, who is now the director of the CIA. It's titled Niet means Niet, Russia's NATO enlargement red lines. I'm just going to read the summary. This is from February 1st, 2008. This was released by WikiLeaks. Summary. Following a muted first reaction to Ukraine's interest, it... Ukraine's intent to seek a NATO membership action plan at the Bakar summit, Foreign Minister Lavrov and other officials have reiterated strong opposition, stressing that <coughs> Russia would view further eastward expansion as a potential military threat. NATO enlargement, particularly in Ukraine, remains an emotional and neurologic issue for Russia, but strategic policy considerations also underline a strong opposition to NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. In Ukraine, these include fears that the issue could potentially split the country in two, leading to violence or even, some claim, civil war, which would force Russia to decide whether to intervene. So, again, it's just so vitally important that the media acts like this happened out of nowhere and no one could have seen it coming. And uh, Putin is just Hitler 2.0 uh, because uh, he just wants to reinstate the Soviet Union. Right. There's right. so many people in so many high places. The media is on 24 hours a day. They can't they have the time to talk about this stuff, but they'd rather spend 20 minutes talking about 
how Hunter Biden's laptop with all his information isn't really his. It's actually Putin planting it in America. I mean, it's so ridiculous what they will go in on. So uh, when it comes to uh, something like uh, that, we have this uh, great fallacy called the day history started. And in this case, the day history started is always, what, uh, February 24th of this year. That was the day that Putin declared war on Ukraine, and that's where we start the conversation. Few know about the Donbass War or the coup in 2014. What information should people know about that? I will uh, give you the, uh, the the full screen here because uh, I uh, want people to know about this. Well, yeah, the, the Donbass is very important. The war has been going on for 18 years in the Donbass. I'm sorry, and how long? 18 years. 18. It's been going on 18 years, yes. And many people have died. The Russian media, of course, emphasizes uh, the suffering, the death and destruction because Ukrainian troops are trying to take back the Donbass. So the aggressor for Russians are uh, uh, Ukrainian troops that are trying to take back these areas called Lugansk and Donetsk. They're, those are the two regions that are, that are being talked about here. But anyway, my point is the American media didn't care about that. They didn't care about that. Also, uh, yeah, the American uh, government, uh, especially through uh, um, Newland and the uh, uh, overthrew, helped overthrow the uh, Lukashenko government in Ukraine because it was considered too pro, uh, too pro Russian. Uh, but anyway, the, yeah, this and also when uh, the Russians uh, took over Crimea in 2014 or 15. The media didn't, America didn't care particularly about that. Again, uh, there's a, uh, a community of, of interest here because now uh, correspondents on the scene can have very emotional interviews. Uh, this is consistent with the foreign policy of Biden and uh, Biden administration. He's a Democrat, of course, and the media is overwhelmingly favorable to him. But the voices who are call, that are calling for uh, wisdom, moderation, uh, realism in all of this are drowned out in this very, very emotional cacophony right now. Yeah, uh, all uh, all vitally uh, important aspects. So the first time NATO declared Article 5, which is a, an attack on one is an attack on all, uh, they started in 1949. They didn't do it officially until America was attacked on 9-11. So if we go by uh, NATO's first major operation in Afghanistan. How would you rate that as a success or failure? This, by the way, is not a straw man. There are a number of people who say, look, 9-11 happened. We spent 20 years in Afghanistan, didn't have another 9-11. Therefore, it was successful. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, I, people's memories are often short, but, the, but at the time, Afghanistan was willing to turn over Osama bin Laden uh, for some sort of trial and to give him up as long as the United States didn't invade their country. But the United States insisted, on, uh, but didn't accept that. I mean, there were ways to deal with this. Um, but see, America always, when, when well, because 9-11 happened here in the United States, Americans reacted very, very uh, strongly to that because since the Civil War, we haven't had any military action on our soil uh, until the 9-11 attack. But more than that, the, uh, going after Al-Qaeda and going after the people behind the 9-11 attack uh, could have been done without invading the country. But see, 
even the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan was never, a mission for that was never clearly defined. After the country was invaded, uh, it's hard to know at what point the United States should have left, but probably right away if it, if it, once it was there. I'm very, I was very um, unhappy with U.S. media uh, about the uh, withdrawal of American troops uh, uh, last year uh, from Afghanistan because the media seemed more concerned about the shameful or ignominious way that Americans left um, Kabul and left Afghanistan than they were about the 20 years that the United States had been fighting this pointless war in the country. Far more death and destruction and really should be embarrassing to Americans was the 20 years that the United States was bombing, attacking, and carrying out these military operations in the country in conjunction with a puppet government, essentially, in, 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 in Afghanistan. But the American media reacts very much to visual images. And the visual images of the United States leaving were so potent or so powerful that American public uh, uh, responded so much to that. But the basic point is, yes, we should never have been in Afghanistan. The first time I ever read about Afghanistan, I think, was in the opening uh, paragraph of uh, the, a study in Scarlet, the first Sherlock Holmes story. And uh, Dr. Watson talks about how he was wounded and almost killed in the second Afghan war. And even as a boy, I thought to myself, what's Mr. What's Mr. Watson doing in Afghanistan getting shot? Why is he even there? <laughs> but uh, of course, the British learned through sorry experience that they shouldn't have uh, fought a war there either, and finally they left. The Russians learned to their chagrin and their uh, disappointment that they sh they, that was a mess and they shouldn't have invaded the country. But America didn't learn from the experience of Britain and Russia. It was going to go in and make it work. Well, it didn't make it work. And the whole premise of the U.S. going into Afghanistan, which, by the way, changed over time, but the premise that it was going to bring democracy or American-style democracy to Afghanistan is complete, is delusional and arrogant. Absolutely. So you know that in all of these uh, cases, the importance of historical narratives comes in. So anyone who opposes a war, uh, well. Obviously, you're an idiot like Neville Chamberlain. If you want to sacrifice, you're a great man like Winston Churchill. It's it's almost impossible to go a day without hearing a Second World War reference. So I just want to channel the wisdom briefly of a uh, gentleman who uh, you and I have a uh, great deal of respect for. This is from, uh, gosh, I, I forget where I originally found this, but this is a quote from... Uh, Pat Buchanan, in an article he wrote, he says here that on September 1st, 1939, uh, 70 years ago, the German army crossed the Polish frontier. On September 3rd, Britain declared war. Six years later, 50 million Christians and Jews had perished. Britain was broken and bankrupt. Germany is smoldering ruin. Europe had served as the site of the most murderous combat known to man and civilians had suffered worse horrors than the soldiers. By May 1945, Red Army hordes occupied 
All the great capitals of Central Europe, Vienna, Prague, Budapest, Berlin, a hundred million Christians were under the heel of the most barbarous tyranny in history, the Bolshevik regime of the greatest terrorist of them all, Joseph Stalin. What, if anything, could justify these sacrifices? <coughs> that means the greatest war that they always brag about ended, uh, for Polish independence, ended with giving Poland to Stalin. This right. is so vitally important that we don't provoke a third world war or we do everything we can to invent it. Mark Weber, director of IHR, what uh, is your statement on that? And uh, please close us out. Well, on our website is a lengthy essay by Murray Rothbard that makes this very point in different words. He makes the point that when Americans are uh, discussing any new war that we're involved in, uh, the answer that people who are justifying whatever war it is always bring up is, well, what about Hitler? What about Britain? What about 1939? We've got to be like that. And as Murray Rothbard says, that's considered the good war. But as Murray Rothbard also points out, it wasn't such a good war uh, for, for, for a lot of reasons. And I recommend that issue, that article's on the uh, homepage of our website. But... Um, uh, yes, uh, we should rethink not only the Ukraine war and the Afghanistan war and the Vietnam war and the Iraq war, but we should also have a realistic and truth-based, factual understanding of the Second World War and how, <clears throat> even from the American point of view, even after America got into the war in 1941, leaving apart Britain and its betrayal of Poland, its betrayal of its own pledges, even America failed to achieve its political goals, not its military goals. It, sure, it crushed Germany and Japan, but America wasn't fighting, it said, to crush Germany and Japan. It had political goals. The political goals, as Roosevelt made these over and over, was a whole new world order in which war would never take place again with the permanent partnership of the Soviet Union and Britain. And that fell apart within a very short time after the end of the war. But when I've talked to people in the Second World War and asked them about that, and overwhelmingly, and you'll find this, historians make the same point, most Americans didn't know why they were fighting the war or why their leaders say that they were fighting the war. They're almost oblivious because for Americans, the war is all about crushing the enemy, beating the bad guy, and then we can go home. But that's not what uh, we were fighting for, either we said we were fighting for in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so forth, beyond just crushing the enemy. Another thing, a very important point, too, about 1939, is that no war, with a very few exceptions, maybe Grenada, uh, the U.S. invasion of Grenada, almost no war works out the way anybody expects at the beginning. That was true of the American Civil War. It was true of the First World War. It was true of the Second World War. Wars spin out of control very, very often because powerful forces are unleashed that nobody can really control or even predict how they're going to act. And that's very, very important in understanding. This Iraq war can spin off in many different directions. And it's one of the reasons why for all his faults, and they are many, uh, Donald Trump seemed to understand that war was going to be bad for his administration and him, and he stayed out of war even when he was very tempted to launch a war against Iraq, Iran at one point. 
but that's why I'm more worried about uh, uh, the Biden and Hillary Clinton, Biden sort of school of foreign policy, which sees the United States as fighting wars, always in the spirit of Winston Churchill in 1940 in Britain. The website is IHR.org. Mr. Weber, thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you for having me.